Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and here we are going to be in Acts chapter 26, where Paul defends himself before Agrippa and tells again of his conversion. As always, we do invite you to check out our show notes. The links to our website, our social media handles are down there, as well as a link to our YouTube channel, where we are right now in the middle of an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. And we also put up regular videos of psalm chanting that you'll find useful as well. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation. We want to thank you so much for listening in. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 26. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Thanks to Brian Motes, as usual, for uh, capturing the recording and for editing it and getting it out to the listening audience. Uh, we are in the uh, toward the end of a uh, series in the, of studies in the book of Acts. Today, we'll be dealing with Acts 26, uh, which is a continuation of a scene that began at the, begin, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 25. Chapter 25 is predominantly about Festus and the Roman governor, a new Roman governor who succeeds Felix and holds a hearing with the Jews and Paul uh, in Caesarea. Uh, And we looked at that in the last episode. Toward the end of that chapter, we anticipate a a new hearing before Agrippa, King Agrippa, who is a Herod, one of the descendants of Herod the Great and one of several Herods who appears in the New Testament. And he comes to visit Festus, and Festus describes Paul's case, and Agrippa wants to be present at a hearing. And so, beginning in chapter 25, verse 23, we have the scene set, a gathering of all the prominent men of Caesarea. Agrippa is there, Festus is there, so you have both the Herod, Herodian authority and the Roman authority. We know that the the Jews who accuse Paul are, are there as well. Some of them are in attendance. So, Paul is not just addressing Herod's court, but he's addressing all of the assembled courts. Uh, this is the climax of the trial scenes of the book of Acts. It's Paul's uh, most elaborate, in a sense, his most elaborate defense. And it's also the third time we read of Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We read about it in chapter 9, where uh, Luke records it for us. Toward the beginning of Paul's series of trials in chapter 23, he repeats this, and now we're coming to the close of his trials uh, Paul's different trials are bracketed by these different speeches where he's uh, recounting his encounter with Jesus. So that's that's the that's the setting full of pomp and circumstance, full of important people. A king is in attendance, a governor is in attendance, Jewish leaders are in attendance, and Paul's going to give his final defense. Uh, one of the things I want to highlight at the beginning is that the way that Paul Paul's done this a number of times. He's shifted the grounds of the hearing from. Uh, defense of his own actions to uh, the question of the resurrection and of Jesus' resurrection. He does that when he's before the Sanhedrin and he cries out that he's on trial for the resurrection of the dead and uh, everything shifts over to the question of resurrection. Uh, And Paul makes a point of shifting from his own self-defense early on in the speech that he gives before Agrippa. He shifts from that to a claim that what's really on trial here is his belief in resurrection and the hope of Israel, and specifically, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. 
So in a sense, this is a, a retrial of Jesus, not only because of the parallels that we find between them, but because of the way Paul puts the question of Jesus uh, into the center of the whole proceedings. As you say, it's a defense of his entire mission and vocation in a way that illustrates the fact that Paul is at the very heart of everything. He's a man in Christ. And so it's impossible to try Paul without casting some sort of judgment upon who Christ is. And occurring at this particular point in the story of Acts, it's Paul's last major discourse. It's the most stylized of his discourses. It's uh, an apologetic summation of the entirety of his life to this point. It's gathering together the various elements of Paul's story in one at the conclusion of his more active ministry. It's also impossible to condemn Paul here uh, in his preamble makes this case without also condemning the Jewish faith. Paul establishes his uh, bona fides, his roots uh, in the Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee, um, and uh, it's all about the resurrection, he says. And so the Jews, if they're going to uh, he tells Her- Agrippa, the Jews, if they're going to condemn me, they're going to basically contradict their own c- commitments. They're accusing me of preaching the resurrection of the dead. But that message, that reality is rooted even in the worship of Israel, which Paul says, I think it's in verse 7. Yeah, this is something to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. So the, the whole sacrificial system is all about the resurrection. So Paul's a true Jew. He didn't set aside the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Jesus was a true Jew. He didn't set aside the uh, Hebrew scriptures. He stepped into it, you, you know, as its, its its owner, fulfilled his promises. And so um, this is not just a sensational piece of autobiographical testimony. It's an appeal to Agrippa and Bernice to embrace the promised reality of the Jewish faith, which is uh, been, uh, you know, which is which has come to pass in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul didn't change religions. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually had changed religions when he became a persecuting Pharisee. In his conversion, you know, when he's converted on the road to Damascus, it was a restoration to the true core of Israel's faith and life, the hope of the resurrection of the dead which is testified in the scriptures and also in their worship in the temple. Yeah, I like that way of putting it, Jeff. Uh, and I think it's um, it fits uh, particularly the way that Paul thinks of himself uh, as a uh, as a light. Uh, he, earlier, early in his ministry, um, he quotes from Isaiah's uh, prophecy about the servant who uh, is a light to the Gentiles and applies it to himself in his own ministry. Uh, here in verse 18, he talks about his his mission is to open blind eyes so that they'll turn from darkness to light, which has always been, that's Israel's vocation. Israel's vocation is to be the servant of the Lord, to bring light to the Gentiles. And Paul uh, becomes that after his encounter with Jesus. Uh, and I think what uh, the autobiography is kind of playing a, a sort of typological role here. Paul identifies himself as a true Jew, as a true Jew of the Jews, the strictest sect of the Ju- of Judaism, a Pharisee, so so strict that he's persecuting the, the church. Uh, but then he converts, uh, and in that conversion, in that encounter with Jesus, it's you know, it's not a change of religion, but it's a fulfillment of his Judaism, and he becomes actually what Israel is called to become. 
and that that his own life is set forth as a kind of model for what he hopes uh, will happen to uh, all those who are assembled, as he says, toward the end of his speech. I wish that everyone here would be like me. I wish all the Jews here would uh, would receive Jesus, shine with his light, and become what, what Israel was supposed to be, which is the, the light to the Gentiles. Hmm. I think that's a great point. In, um, in this chapter, Paul adds in this extra detail in verse 13 that a light shines from heaven and it is brighter than, than the sun. And that seems to create a, a link in particular to Isaiah 60, where we have this idea of the brightness of the sun um, spoken about, or, or particularly, it says the sun shall be no more um, your light, nor brightness shall the moon uh, give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and God will be your glory. And this is obviously towards the end of the chapter that begins, uh, the Lord has um, risen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of, of your rising. And I think some of the imagery there is is playing into what's happening here this is the light to the gentiles which is um spoken about and which kind of dawns all the more brightly as um those end chapters of isaiah play out witherington has noted that there are nine elements of greek rhetorical style that paul is employing within this um speech and he's also making a very careful appeal to a number of different witnesses um daryl bock notes seven um, his companions on the way to Damascus, the Jews of Jerusalem, Agrippa's knowledge of Judaism, the scriptures, a heavenly revelation, Paul's own testimony, and then Paul's presence before the dignitaries is proof in itself of God's protection. And so this is a very carefully developed case. Um, also, it seems that um, some have speculated that Luke is just constructing this with his own um, creative imagination, but the records that we have of speeches of this kind are of a similar length. Um, it's far from unreasonable to believe that this is pretty much exactly what Paul delivered in his speech. Um, and the more I think we look into Paul's, the portrayal of Paul in the book of Acts, the more I think we'll see that it is grounded in the history that we have elsewhere, the way that Paul references how he views his mission, the way that he speaks about his plans in various places tally very well with the descriptions that we have in Acts. It seems like one of the other ways that uh, Paul Paul's bio- autobiography functions typologically is um, he becomes a, a reflector of the light of Jesus that shines on him. And he's opening, uh, he's opening eyes with that light bringing light to uh, Agrippa, to Festus. But his autobiography puts up a mirror to the Jews who are trying to kill him, to trying to ambush him. Once he becomes a follower of Jesus, all the things that he was trying to do to Jesus are now done to him. And so the Jews who are persecuting him and trying him are doing just what he did. And in a sense, Paul is posing the question to them, why are you persecuting? This, This is Jesus' question he poses to them. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, and in a sense, I think uh, the whole setup is that Paul Paul's confrontation with Agrippa and Festus and the Jewish leaders and all the other great men of the city uh, is a Damascus Road moment for them. Paul is uh, bearing the light of Jesus before them, and they have a chance to respond to that light and do what Paul did, which is be obedient to the vision and to become what they're supposed to be, which is light to the world. 
so there's there's it's it's working in a couple of different ways. He's calling for their conversion, and in a sense, he's also mirroring to them in his autobiography. He's mirroring to them the way they're behaving. He shifts roles around so that he's in a sense taking the role of Jesus, and uh, they're taking his previous role and persecuting him, and he's calling on them to. Uh, follow his example in responding to, in the way they respond to Jesus and uh, and Jesus' question. A general point which strikes me as worth noting is just the difference between the way Paul speaks when he gives a defence of himself and when he just proclaims the gospel of his own um, volition when he sort of goes out and, and takes the gospel to a new um, location. In in that there he is focused entirely on on the resurrection and how he is a, a witness. Uh, to Jesus, but here, here it is. It is more um, personal, I guess, and to do with his previous way of life and the transformation which has uh, occurred in him, which doesn't seem to be such a big part of, of um, his proclamation elsewhere. And um, I just think that's worth uh, bearing in mind. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not by any means against the sharing of personal um, testimonies because the gospel affects us and changes us as individuals but um it, it doesn't seem first and foremost in paul's preaching uh it, it's not his personal transformation that he goes out and proclaims to um sort of gentile audiences but it's really integral to his defense hmm. there seem to be toward the end of the speech a couple of uh notes that uh, go back to luke 24 jesus encounter with the two disciples on the road to emmaus Jesus teaching his disciples everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. And I'm thinking particularly of the last words in verses 22 and 23, where uh, Paul, again, uh, as, as Jeff said at the beginning, is uh, showing that he's not changed from the religion of his fathers, but he's now fulfilling what he was supposed to be as a Jew. Uh, he's saying nothing but what the, uh, what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And then he summarized in verse 23 that Christ was going to suffer and by the, that by reason of his resurrection of the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So that's um, not quite a quotation from Luke 24, but it's very close to what Jesus had taught his disciples. The other thing that makes that uh, strikes me as a Luke 24 reference is uh, verse 18, where Paul refers again, as I mentioned earlier, refers to his mission to bring light to the to, to to open their eyes, sorry, so that they can turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, which is of course what happens uh, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus because they've heard from Jesus everything concerning Himself in the Scriptures, and then they sit at table as He breaks bread, uh, then their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. So there um, uh, appears to be some link back to Luke twenty four with Jesus meeting with His disciples. Paul is now in a position to open eyes by proclaiming everything that the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, which is the Christ. We don't actually hear of um, Ananias here in this account. Um, all of the commission is contained within the Damascus Road encounter. And we don't hear about his um, being blinded. Um, rather, it's the... Um, the Jews and the Gentiles who are blinded, it's their eyes that will be opened. So he's playing the role of Ananias within the story. He's, his eyes are opened first from their blindness, and then he is sent to open other people's eyes. And the key metaphor, as both you and James have pointed out, is that of light 
and sight. Um, it's mm-hmm. something that you have in Paul's writing more generally, the presentation of Christ in terms of the messianic light, um, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The idea of being people of the light, the things that are shown up by light are light. And that is such a governing image within the teaching of Christ at points, but even more so, I think, in the teaching of Paul and the way that he connects his own experience with his broader mission, I think, is perhaps more pronounced here than anywhere else. Mm, Yeah. Another interesting detail which emerges in this particular account of Paul's conversion is um, uh, this statement of of him kicking against the goads. Um, We commented earlier, or, or rather, I mean, I commented and no one took me to one side to explain to me the way of truth more accurately, so I assumed you agreed. Um, that Paul, in his repetition of his testimony, is bringing out different aspects of um, the unconverted Jews. So, I mean, initially he talks about how the people who were with him heard the voice which spoke um, from heaven, and then in his second account in Acts, I think it's 21, um, he again says that they heard, but the verb is governed by a different case, and I think it's meant to mean that they didn't understand, um, which brings sort of the hardness of Isaiah 6 um, to mind how they hear but don't understand. And here there's there's something much more volitional to it when he speaks about himself as kicking against the, the goads. So there there is this um, uh, urging in a, a particular direction, but there's resistance against it. And um, I guess as Peter was saying, Paul, Paul is here. Um, uh, he has taken the place of Christ, if you like, and, and his audience have taken the place of, of the old Paul. And um, I think part of the point is to portray them um, as as deliberately resistant, de- deliberately resistant, kicking against um, what the Lord is doing. Yeah, and I think that uh, if I could extend that, first of all, that um, uh, if we need proof that uh, – Jesus occasionally took in some Greek drama up in Caesarea uh, during his lifetime. I think it, we, we have it here because he's quoting from he's quoting from Euripides, right? Uh, he's he's definitely been reading his Euripides uh, or seeing it enacted somewhere in a in a in a theater. Uh, but the the image is, is uh, seems to be specifically that an animal that uh, a goat is you know, like ox goat. You're trying to get the animal to do something that you want him to do, and an animal that kicks against the goat is is an animal that. Uh, refuses to go in the direction that his owner is trying to get him to go with his goad. And and I, yeah, I think you're right. Paul is that initially. He's kicking against the goads. And now uh, the Jews are that. But if, if we put the extend the metaphor, the Jews are like God's, God's workhorse, God's warhorse, uh, God's ox to plow his fields. Uh, and yet they're resisting. So I think the, that that fits into, in my mind, with the image of with the, with the theme of uh, Paul calling, insofar as this is a Jewish audience, and it partially partially is, Paul calling the Jews to be who they are, to be truly Israel, to be uh, God's warhorse, so that, uh, to be God's uh, you know work animal, so that uh, they they can fulfill that mission. And as long as they're resisting the goading that God is giving them, then they they won't be able to do that. When you read this, it's hard not to notice the story. How much, how much time, space, kind of history is here about Paul, about Jesus, about the Jews and their worship, about everything that's happened uh, when he, in the end, when he talks to um, uh, Agrippa, he says, you know, these, 
I'm persuaded that none of these things, verse 26, have escaped your notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And it just, maybe it's somewhat obvious, but um, for Paul, for us, the Christian faith, it's not grounded in in flights of philosophical or mystical speculation, or even a, a chain of, of uh, you know, a, a logical chain of arguments, but uh, in historical facts. Um, and remember, Luke began all this in Luke 1 with uh, wanting to uh, give an account, an accurate account of all the things that have happened. And here at the end, you get a summary of everything that's happened. Um, and this is this is really central to the Christian faith. We we confess, even in a Nicene Creed, that we trust in God, the God who's done these things in creation, in Jesus, in the formation of the church by the Holy Spirit. I think that 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 uh, that sense in the Christian church arises from speeches like this, from uh, that Paul gives, and from many other places. That this is. A, this is a faith that's historically grounded in in what happened in space and time, and even beyond that, it's um, it's clearly not just flights of philosophical fancy and speculation, nor is it myth, um, but nor is it just history. This is demonstrable history. These are mm-hmm. events that did not happen in the corner. There are many um, witnesses to these things, and different types of witnesses from the scriptures to the many people who saw Christ raised from the dead, to the ways in which God has preserved his people and um, witnessed by the Spirit and the many signs that are performed by the Spirit to the truth of um, Christ's word. This is something that is presented within a forensic setting here, which I think is significant for Luke's purpose. He's a historian who's presenting these events as events requiring a sort of, I mean, we mentioned earlier, evidence demands a verdict. These are historical events that are calling for the sort of investigation that takes place in such a hearing. Um, It's presented before someone to judge. They're supposed to investigate and look into each one of these claims to assemble the witnesses. And then once they have done so, to realize that these things that did not happen in the corner clearly have a meaning that is far greater than um, any of the myths, any of the small regional events that people might want to just say that the message of Christ is nothing more than that. This is happening on the grand scale and the grand stage of history. What do you make of the uh, reactions of Festus and Agrippa? Uh, Festus responds by charging Paul with being mad. And uh, Paul responds to that and appeals to Agrippa. Agrippa responds, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. That's one way to translate it. So what was it? what is it that makes Festus conclude that Paul's out of his mind? What is it that Paul says that seems nuts? Uh, and then what is it? What is Agrippa's? What's the force of Agrippa's response? Is he um, saying, I'm almost there? Or is he saying, uh, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to try harder, Paul, because you're not gonna be able to persuade me in such a short time, or something else. What? How do you assess those reactions? Well, I mean, this isn't a comment exactly on why um, uh, Festus makes that response, but I think something interesting about the way the narrative is 
put together is that in verse 11, when Paul talks about himself um, enraging fury, um, going against the Jews and, and persecuting them, um, that term raging fury is where we get sort of the English um, mania and, and maniac and so forth. That's the same thing which occurs um, here when Paul is being accused of being out of his mind. And so um, there's this very sort of perspectival sense to the whole thing, whereas Paul looks back on his previous condition and, and sees it as manic and, and insane. Festus now looks at his present condition and sees it as manic and, and insane. And so, um, yeah, there's this real sort of shift of perspectives encaptured mm-hmm. in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Seems to me it's something between an an earnest and a somewhat sarcastic response. Um, he's recognising the force of Paul's arguments. But on the other hand, Paul has put him into a corner. Um, he's pitting him against Festus. Um, he's saying, Agrippa, you know these things. Um, you know the prophets. And he's Agrippa wants some sort of way of um, maybe avoiding being put into this corner. And so he recognised the force of Paul's argument, but also tries to duck out of the um, position that Paul is pressing him into. Hmm. I think it does remind us that um, persuading people, even the Apostle Paul with all of his rhetorical skill and the power of his testimony and uh, his witness, um, you still have a man uh, well, Festus thinks he's out of his mind, and Agrippa is still agnostic about it all. Um, it's it's a it's a helpful reminder to us that uh, um, it's not always about the presentation. Well, it's partially about it, but it's about what's going on in the heart and mind of the listener, um, and it's not our job to manipulate or engineer conversions. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that Paul obviously wants Agrippa to make an informed decision, isn't it? So in in response to the question, you know, would you in a short time, let's assume that's the right reading bit, um, persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, you know, whether short or long, um, and and then sort of goes on to to encourage him to look further. And um, it just strikes me that that's what we should be wanting from people for people to make an, an informed decision I, I was listening once to uh on a radio station a, a debate between a, a christian and a, a non-christian and um it may even have been a, a friend of some of steve jeffrey who who is the christian but either way the the, the non-christian said well you know wh- what do you trying to do are you just wanting me to sort of convert uh, um is, is that what you're aiming at here in this discussion and uh, the christian said well no because I, I don't think you know enough to make a sensible conversion at the moment but i'm certainly wanting you to start looking into these things and start attending a church and and beginning an, an exploration and um I, I think there's a lot of wisdom and, and sense to that in terms of how we speak to people we're not necessarily needing to present to everyone that we speak to a full account of substitutionary atonement or something but we are wanting to move them closer to the truths of the gospel and to arouse some sort of um instinct within them and interest within them i think it's rather humorous uh but tragic that this ends with um the king and the governor and bernice talking with one another and all they can do is talk about the legal case 
I just finished reading uh, Mary Beard's uh, History of Rome, SPQR. And <laughs> if, if you can say anything about the Romans, they were practical, they were pragmatic, and they're always interested in, in legalities. Uh, and this seems to be for these guys, for uh, Festus and for Agrippa. And we should remember that this is Herod Agrippa II, and he grew up uh, in the court of Claudius, I think. I think that's the case. Uh, if I remember my um, Robert Graves book, uh, I Claudius, he was the uh, he he grew up in the Roman court. He's thoroughly Roman, and these guys are so Roman. Uh, they're not really listening and open open to Paul. Uh, they're more concerned about the legal case and their own reputation and careers. They're so invested in government and in real politic that the gospel seems probably to them irrelevant and foolish, and. There's, there's, there's probably a lesson here, especially these days for Americans. I don't know about in, in uh, England, but anything that doesn't seem to fit into the narrow confines of practical politics and economics these days is superfluous to people. It just, uh, it, it's like, why should I care about that? But the but the the Romans <laughs> failed to see in these Romans here that their practicality um, had blinded them to what was obviously true and real uh, in the testimony of Paul. Yeah, and it, it's particularly the case here that they don't they just don't get the point of Paul's speech because uh, as I, I said at the beginning, Paul's made the case uh, that what's really on trial here is the question of the resurrection, the hope of Israel. And verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you if God does indeed raise the dead? That question just glances off of them. They think it's nuts for anyone to say that, that this Jesus who who died that Paul considers to be alive. It's nuts for anyone to say that, but it's not a criminal nuttiness. It should be tolerated. So yeah, it's the contrast between what Paul actually delivers and their response to it is pretty striking. The way in which biblical narratives handle time just strikes me as a really interesting and noteworthy thing uh the bible can cover huge swathes of time in just a couple of verses or a, a couple of sentences it can just say sort of someone went to such and such a place and and had children and died and then their children grew up and you know 30 or 40 years have been covered in a sentence um and time seems to be slowing down here in the book of acts and that's done in various ways there's a lot of repetition there's a lot of speech, and as a result, you get this fairly dense sequence of events where many chapters span a, a very short period of time. And um, something that Peter noted last time we spoke was that chronological indicators play a part in that. So previously in the book, Luke has often just mentioned quite matter-of-factly how a couple of years pass or Paul stays somewhere for 18 months or whatever. And you get some of that here, but it, it's very rare. Instead, you just get these references to days which come um, in quite staccato um, fashion. And, and so in all these ways, you get a sort of slowing down of time and uh, an intensification of events. And that happens in other books. It happens in Jeremiah towards the time of the fall of um Jerusalem, but uh, a noteworthy example is the book of Revelation where that happens. And um, I think that's noteworthy because of some of the contact points we spoke about last time around between uh, the Olivet Discourse and Acts and um, Revelation, which, which Peter um, brought out. And in um, Revelation, again, you get that intensification of 
time, it's, it's not completely uniform, but you do get sort of slowly these references to being tormented for five months or a 42-month um, period. They sort of fade away and you get more references to days. And, and particularly what starts to emerge towards the climax climax of the book is references to particular hours to the um hour of judgment um which is coming and and that phrase uh, that word hour sort of uh comes to dominate towards the final um chapters and that just strikes me as interesting the, the way in which things are uh, hotting up here and coming to um a climax and if there is that sort of parallel between acts and uh, revelation then it has various implications i think but also flags up a very interesting contrast because in acts the climax actually isn't going to take place in jerusalem it's going to take place um out in an island in malta where um a a serpent is going to bite paul and the serpent is going to be um thrown into the fire as happens in revelation but it's, it's in a very different um context and framed in a different light and so i, I think you have that real climactic sense here in um acts that the whole narrative is building up to something which we might just read and see as fairly insignificant in in itself that there's a, an incident out in the middle of malta just to a few people um but it, it's portrayed as something that has this great significance to it by luke thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.